I've, um, I've, I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about <laughs> tonight. I've had a few different ideas. I, I sketched out a talk and then I thought about something totally different I could talk about. And I, and I thought about uh, doing something I've, I do periodically at the sitting group in San Francisco, but I've never done on retreat. But I thought this retreat, we should give it a try. So uh, what I'd like to do is make up a talk with you. So this is a little more participatory on your side and participatory in this way. I want you to take a moment and reflect. Given your experience here, these, you know, basically 24 hours now, what would be the most helpful thing for me to talk about regarding, for you personally? What would be the most helpful thing in relation to your practice here? And I'm not asking for things about daily life practice. We'll talk about daily life practice at the end of the retreat, which is coming. <laughs> but, but right now we're still in the heart of the retreat. And so to really consider, reflect for yourself, like if you got to come up and tell me or tell any of us when we're giving talk, oh, here's what I'd like you to talk about tonight. Or here's what's most relevant to me given what I've seen today. Or here's what's been most difficult. Can you offer any words that might be helpful? Or here's what's been most interesting and cutting edge. And do you have anything to say about that? And so take a moment and just see what, what would be, if, if you got to say what the talk was, what would you want the talk to be? And then when you're ready, when you've found something, um, I'll take a bunch of themes and then I'll weave a talk based on what you would like. Um, I find that listening to my thoughts, I have an opinion about everything. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear something about non-judgment and therefore non-violence. Okay. I, I will. Okay. So that first person asked about views and opinions, especially related to non-judgment, non-violence. Quieting my mind. Quieting your mind. How has the practice benefited you? How has the practice benefited you? <laughs> um, incorporating loving kindness. Mm -hmm. Great. Incorporating loving kindness. How to stay with suffering when you just want to run. Great. I mean, not great, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's a good question. Okay, all the way in back. So what got in the way at the beginning? Yeah, did you, and did you get frustrated? Or did you just keep having to look at it? Or, you know, before you could take, say, a month long or two years. How to let go of obsessive thoughts? Let go of obsessive thoughts. 
how to get them to let go of you. <laughs> Avoid self-criticism. All the way in back. Uh, what do I do when I can't stop fantasizing about um, chocolate or sex? <laughs> so fantasizing about chocolate or sex. Fogginess or forgiveness? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. <laughs> okay, last one. How to work with physical emotional responses that come up, for example, the urge to laugh or get angry. So laughter or tears, those kind of responses in the meditative process and in the hall. Now you have to sit with me for a moment while I figure out how to do this. So I'm going to start with the, the topic of how to stay with suffering when you just want to run out of the hall, um, which is a really good question, really important question, because that experience will happen for each of us here, where we feel like, first of all, what am I doing here? And why am I subjecting myself to this? Why would we do that? I, I could be at a picnic, you know? <laughs> having barbecued tofu. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's a question that comes up, and it's really part of the rite of passage of practice. That that's, a, that's a really appropriate question. What am I doing here? Why do I want to do this? Why do I want to suffer like this? And um, Ajahn Chah, who is Jack Cornfield's teacher in Thailand, he said it very succinctly. He said, to run from suffering is to run towards it. To run from suffering is to run towards it. And in Buddhism, at times, it's, it's spoken about in this way. There's another way that it's talked about. It's that there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to less suffering. And to... to make this radical act of turning towards our suffering goes against the stream, as the Buddha literally said. He talked about the teachings going against the stream. It goes against the stream of conventional society. It goes against the stream of conventional thought. And conventional thought, especially these days, even in the, like it was in the Buddha's day, was, no, you, you go have some fun. Go do something, make yourself feel better. Go fill that sense of lack or deficiency or fear so that you don't feel it or know it. Deny it in some way. It's okay. You know, and our whole economy is structured to deny 
the suffering. And on, on every level, you notice how you have to actually sometimes to really, to really uh, acknowledge it to ourselves. It takes a little while because it's not our training. We actually think we're doing something wrong if we're suffering. How many people have that idea like, oh, there's something wrong if I'm having a bad time or if I'm not happy? So one of the, one of the first freedoms that you might be able to taste is the freedom based on the teaching that Deborah mentioned earlier of the Four Noble Truths or sometimes called the Four Ennobling Truths. There is suffering. There is suffering in human life. It's not, oddly enough, it's not totally personal. All human beings suffer. All beings suffer. And we suffer emotionally, we suffer physically, we suffer uh, psychologically, we suffer um, communally in relationship, we suffer culturally and nation-state suffering and racial suffering and you know, class suffering and all kinds of suffering. And turning towards it is a radical act and it's not a passive act. And there's sometimes some confusion for people that they think, oh, it means you just accept suffering. And it's true, we'll use that phrase, we'll say accept it or allow it or be present with it. But it's not, we're not saying be passive about it. We're saying pay attention to it. What is it? What is, what is this suffering? What is this boredom right now? Even though, and I think Deborah said it, I think earlier, even if you've had boredom a thousand times, now, what's it like in the living, present moment when it's alive? Or grief, maybe you've been grieving, but what's it actually like now? Don't let the memory of grief obscure your direct experience of grief or anger. Or, and of course, on the other side, I also want to include, don't let your memory of happiness um, veil that actual experience of happiness or joy or pleasure or contentment. Don't, the teaching of suffering and not suffering asks us to, the radical act that we're doing is we're turning towards suffering, but we're not taking anything for granted. We want to know it directly in this moment. We want to see what's it made of, what's the life that's here, and what happens as we begin to pay attention and not simply identify with it. Oh, this is me. I'm a this. I'm an unhappy person, or I'm a scared person, or I'm a this person, or I'm a that person. No, there's, there's a person here having an experience and starting to become aware of the experience. And that awareness is not the experience. That the knowing of the experience begins to create, if we speak more conventionally, space. Or some sense of openness to the experience. Or some disidentification from the experience. Okay, there's pain, I'm knowing the pain. The knowing is not the pain. And so we want to be really present with the suffering because we can almost immediately, when we're mindful, start to see that that's not all that's here, that the suffering is part of what's here. Another part of this question about why to stay with the suffering has to do with the non-passivity of mindfulness. Even though we're not doing anything, it's still a, a certain kind of skill that we're learning. And like any skill, as we develop it, we learn how to respond better and better, more clearly, more, we're, we're, you know how when you first, like especially like I'm not good with computers, so when I first 
learn a new thing, software, something. Like I'm just kind of lost and what is it doing? And then, and then slowly, if I stay with it, stay with it, relax and do my best and stumble through and I start to get it, oh, it becomes clearer, becomes easier. And I know how to use it and use it in a way that is helpful or skillful. Mindfulness in this way, turning towards our suffering as the suffering starts to clarify we will have more and more of our capacities come forward to deal with the suffering, right? If we pretend it's not here, if we deny it, if we run away from it, we can't deal with it at all, actually. We have only one way to deal with it, and that's basically denial or suppression. But if we're willing to see, okay, this is here, I'm pissed, or I'm angry, or I'm... Um, afraid, or whatever, or, or this, and really this translates to the suffering of the world, if we're willing to see the suffering that's there, and find our ground in it, then we can respond. Then we can start to bring the other qualities that will come with mindfulness, of clear seeing, of discernment, of, of um, kindness and compassion, of uh, creativity and ingenuity and intelligence that begin that are part of our nature can begin to respond. And what may be confusing at first is we're sitting here a day like today, it's difficult. It's a difficult day generally, the first day or so of a retreat. You know, you go in and out of some periods, oh, it's, oh I'm getting it now, and then the next moment it's like, Oh my God, it's just like, I can, where have I been for the last 20 minutes? And, and I'm a bad meditator then. But it may surprise you at some point, not now, but down the line, how valuable a day like today is. How valuable, how much we get to learn by simply making that intention and that effort to be present with the suffering, with the confusion, with the boredom, with the being lost in this kind of hypnagogic state of, you know, these thoughts and memories and all this stuff that come, where does that come from? You know, I'm just trying to be with my breath. And then the pain in the knees and the back and the, wow. Here, here's a, here's a rather dramatic story from a woman named Alison Wright. Who, who practiced for many years in this tradition. And she's talking about something. This was written in 205, so this happened in 2001. She says, um, four, and she wrote it in 205. She says, four years and 20 surgeries before my Kailash journey. Kailash is a famous mountain in Tibet that practitioners go and they circumambulate as a practice. They walk around it. A logging truck screeched around a corner on a remote Laotian jungle road and slammed into the bus I was riding. My left arm was shredded to the bone as it smashed through a window. My back, pelvis, tailbone, and ribs snapped immediately. My spleen was sliced in half and my heart, stomach, and intestines were ripped out of place and pushed up into my shoulder. With my lungs collapsed and my diaphragm punctured, I could barely breathe. I was bleeding to death inside and out, and it would be more than 14 hours before I received medical care. A practicing Buddhist, I had been headed to a meditation retreat in India where I had planned to sit for three silent weeks. Actually, one of the teachers here, Sharda Rogel, knows Allison. She was coming to a retreat that Sharda was teaching in India. Instead, I lay crushed and bleeding at the side of the road. Struggling to draw an air, I imagined each breath to be my last. Breathing in, breathing out, consciously willing myself not to die, I concentrated on the life force fighting its way into my lungs. Along with my breath, pain became my anchor. As long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. I thought back to the hours I had sat in meditation, fixated on the sensation of my leg falling asleep. That discomfort could hardly compare to the torment of my injuries, but I discovered that meditating could still help me focus and remain alert. 
and I'm convinced it saved my life. I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and the bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I never felt so aware, so clear-headed, and completely in the present moment. And she was doing, she had learned the same practice you're learning. And I said, it's a very dramatic story of there are times when we can't run from suffering. That that is part of the human lot. She didn't make a mistake or do something wrong. You know, I was in an accident myself. I was at the end of a retreat with Sokni Rinpoche, our teacher, uh, Tibetan teacher. And um, uh, at the end of the Tibetan retreat, you have kind of a little party and dinner. I wanted to get get some food somewhere else. So we were going out to eat, four of us, and we were driving on the freeway and somebody hit us. And we started careening back and forth across the freeway, you know, in traffic. And, um, and it was very kind of amazing to watch the reaction that happened in that moment because you, ne- you never know, right? You never know what's going to happen. We act as if we, we know, but we don't know. And of course, Sokni's whole teaching is relax, 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 relax. And, and uh, the driver actually, she stayed very relaxed. And I was in the back seat, and I noticed myself, I leaned forward, and this is not something I did. This just happened. And I just kept saying, relax, relax. You know, I was kind of, kind of seeding the field of the car. And somebody else was doing a Buddhist uh, a Tibetan prayer, Om Mani Padme Hom, Om Padme Padme, while we're screaming back and forth. And then, and then all of a sudden the car really starts to go out of control and spin. And then I see we're going to hit the, hit the you know, divider to the other side. And, and again, I didn't do this. None of this is really like, oh, I did this. But the practice conditions our heart and mind for these moments where it did seem like there was a lot of time, I have to say that. It definitely had that, that kind of altered state. You know, it seemed like you know, everything was in slow motion. And I saw we were going to hit, and I just felt myself let go. And, um, and then we were, we were fine. We were in a big Volvo. The Volvo really took the blast, and we were all basically okay. Luckily, you know, might not have been, but... Um, we never know, and we don't have control. And we're not trained well about how to work with our human life. And so Buddhism is a training. The teachings of mindfulness and compassion and kindness, they're a training. And they're another training. You've had many trainings in your life about how to use your mind and how to be you know, maybe logical or rational or analytic. Or, and those are all good trainings. Or, you know, how to think, you know, practically or pragmatically. Those are all good trainings. But this is a slightly different training. This is a training about how to be, how to be with experience as it is, and how to find not only our, our freedom, but all that comes with it our love and our compassion and our kindness and our intelligence and our creativity and our ingenuity and our um, and, and capacities we don't even know we have. Um, the, the kind of clarity that Alison Wright describes that is available to us. <clears throat> now, so there's suffering as part of human life. It's not all of human life, and the Buddha didn't ever say that. He actually talked a lot about all the good things in human life and the beauties of human life. But he, but he was very clear about what he thought was helpful, to look at suffering and what brings freedom from suffering. And very practical about teaching skills that he felt would help people, would help us, to find our way from suffering to freedom. And so the second truth, as Deborah said, is the truth of attachment or clinging or not being tightening, fear, reactivity, not actually being with things as they are. Craving for things to be different, 
you know, wanting things that aren't happening. Anybody notice that in their day? Like something be happening and they think, oh, if I can just get done with this, then the good thing will happen. Oh, I want that, I want that nice state of mind. Or of course, the, you know, that right in there, in the wanting the nice state, there's the not wanting what's here. That, that's suffering. So beginning to see the, 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 how suffering works, how it works, and how we might begin to untangle ourselves from the suffering. It's a word the Buddha used, a phrase he talked about, who can untangle this tangle? Who can untangle this tangle? Part of untangling the tangle, and really part of the first piece of the untangling, is this question of our judgment and the kind of ideas and beliefs, and especially the self-judgment and the, the self-criticism that we carry. And it's a really, and again, this is part of, remember, it's the, the Four Noble Truths, they're ennobling. If you begin to let go of your self-criticism, you will know what it means to be noble. That you will begin to see a truth of who you are, who we are. Because the, the judgments aren't true. Oh, I'm a bad meditator. You may not be a skilled meditator, but that's, that may be true. That's not a problem. That's just what's true. But your value is not based on being a good meditator or a bad meditator or a skilled or unskilled meditator. Your value is not based... Well, let's hear. Here's the story I like to tell. In the Buddha's teaching, there's a very famous story of a serial killer. Buddhism is, I think, the only religion with a serial killer as a hero. <laughs> You know, it's a little funny Buddhism at times, and it's, but it's true. It's Angulimala. This is a mala, right? Beads, uh, like a rosary, mala. Anguli means fingers. So he had a mala of 99 fingers of people he'd killed that he wore. And at some point, for certain karma, he ends up going after the Buddha to be his hundredth victim. And the Buddha's doing slow walking like you were doing out there. And Angulimala is like a powerful man, right? He's said to have the power of an elephant and the speed of a horse and all this stuff. And he can't catch the Buddha who's doing the slow walking. You know, it's a mythological story. And he yells at the Buddha and he says, Stop! Stop, monk! And the Buddha already knows with his powers, he knows Angulimala is coming after him. And he, he gets the whole picture and he turns around and he says to Angulimala, I have stopped, Angulimala, now you stop. And the Buddha's a really good teacher. And so Angulimala gets the transmission, boom. He, he gets it that the, not only is this no ordinary monk, but this monk has told him something that's true. And he realizes that he needs to stop and he's a very powerful man and he stops and he becomes a disciple of the Buddha immediately and gets enlightened. What do you make of that? <laughs> what does your judgment, superego criticism make of that, right? You know, you're sitting here, you've killed 99 people, oh, I'm a horrible person, none of that. And Gulimala doesn't have a lot of self-criticism. Now, what, the way I understand this story is that our value is not based on what we do. That there is a value to life, to human life, that is inherent. And we don't recognize our own value, our own goodness. And I mean, you know, in the realm of peoples, everybody here is pretty good. You, you wouldn't be here if you didn't have a good heart. You just wouldn't. I mean, I know you're not perfect. Believe me. I don't have any illusions about that. I'm not a Pollyanna kind of guy. But your goodness is unassailable. Now, and, and it was actually true for Angulimala. 
Now it doesn't mean, now it's not, it doesn't mean we have a free ride. Oh, you can do whatever you want because you're good. That's not the Buddhist understanding. And Gulimala still had karma for, we have karma for our actions. And it's why it's very important to reflect and pay attention and to act from our highest intention and not from our small and contracted sense of self. And if you look, that self-criticism, that self-denigration or self-deprecation, that's coming from a sense of fear, a sense of contraction, a sense of limit, a sense of unworthiness. That is not coming from our, our deepest understanding. And so to believe that, or let's put it this way, to begin to disbelieve that, is actually part of the skill of seeing clearly. To, to really begin to see objectively the beauty. It's usually easier to see it in other people, right? But actually to see it in ourselves, to see our own goodness, and to not let that judging voice, not believe that judging voice, and see what happens. And then the nobility is not a grandiosity. It's not, it's not a sense of, oh, I'm better than people. No, it's a sense of the innate goodness that we are blessed with, that we are stewards of, that really the goal is to let it function in the world for the benefit of all. To let that kindness and compassion and care and sensitivity and, uh, and wisdom and clarity and discernment and um, uh, power, spiritual power, let it function in the world for the benefit of all. And so the judgment, the judgment will address violence, both inner violence and ultimately outer violence. Because it's also true that we don't just judge ourselves, we judge others. And here's, the, here's an important thing. Maybe it won't stop. You know, and personally, I have a judging mind. My mind judges very easily. I'm on retreat, I'm sitting, I don't even look at people, but I notice their socks. <laughs> why, why are they wearing those socks? Those socks, those socks are kind of tacky. They have little Buddhas on them. They're really tacky. <laughs> or, or, or sometimes, oh, they're wearing those socks again today? <laughs> oh. But the beautiful thing about practice, and that I've seen, I'm jumping ahead to one of the questions about benefits, is I don't have to believe my mind. <laughs> In fact, what a relief not to believe my mind. My mind does say anything, it's just really. But, but I've also been trained to see it clearly, and then to see, oh, what do I want to believe? What opinion, what view? is actually worth my time and energy. And what views and opinions are just thoughts. And, and views and opinions, it's really even a bigger topic because our whole way of seeing the world is shaped by our views and opinions of ourself, of others. And to start to let go of our views and opinions is also a very radical act. And you'll see you've, you've had a lot of ideas, a lot of views, a lot of opinions so far. How often are the views and opinions actually line up with reality? It's so rare. They're just, they, they, they feel like they protect us or they define us. And, and that's just, that's the suffering of them. We're not a view. We're not an opinion. We're not an idea. You are not an idea. What's true here, what's true here is not defined by an idea. We can talk about what's true, but we will always fall short of what the truth actually is. So let's see, where am I here? Um, so, um, uh, so part of what we do and part of what will um, what will help as we begin to let go of the judgment it'll let us be right where we are actually there's one other thing I want to say about judgment and it has to do with the sense of self because whether you know it or not we are 
looking at, examining the sense of how the self gets created and what happens if we allow that to relax, that identification that we call I, me, and mine. What happens when that relaxes? And in psychology, I think this is very helpful. Actually, it's a circle, which is the ego. Uh, uh, this is actually totally Freudian, but I think it works. It's the ego. Within, the, within that big circle is a small circle, which is called the id, or the instinctual energies. You know, the passions and the, the, the aggressive and libidinal energies and survival energies and the social instincts and all the instincts. Then there's the bigger circle, which is the ego or sense of self. Then there's a circle on top of that big circle. It's called the superego. The superego is really the realm of criticism, judgment. Um, uh, um, keeping the, it keeps the ego in place. That's the function of the judgment. So one of the things you'll notice as the judgment starts to relax, your sense of self will not be so solid. And it's why the judgment comes up often. You might start to have an experience. You might start to feel really expanded and really good. Really good here. Like, oh, wow, is this what they're talking about? Wow, this is really good. Oh, I better not get too attached to it. Who's saying that? We didn't say that. We said stay with what's present. It's actually a very subtle form of judgment. Oh, you shouldn't have this experience. Or something bad will happen if you have this experience. Or maybe there'll be a grief that comes. I remember my first retreat, that was a number of days in, and this grief came up like a, like a, a, a geyser, and I was not expecting it. And there was all this judgment about it. Oh, you're supposed to be done with that grief. You, that's years ago. Why is that happening now? What's wrong with you? Be a man. That's all judgment. The practice is to be with what is. And with what is will actually take us, we have a narrow band of self that we're comfortable with. Eugene doesn't get this high or this low. Eugene's experience is like this. It's not like that. But when that band starts to relax and become unsolid, which ultimately it is, then anything can happen. And that scares the superego or the judge, and so it comes into play. Oh, you shouldn't feel that. You shouldn't feel that good. There are people suffering. Oh, there are fires happening in, San in California. You shouldn't feel happy now. Or, you know, you, you know, other people are suffering more. You shouldn't feel sad. Those are all ideas. Learning to let yourself be, because letting ourselves be is the doorway for being to show itself. We are an expression of something. If we start where we are, it will reveal deeper and deeper truths of who and what we are. If we're willing and we have the courage and the skills to stay present, with what's here, even the surface, the surface will reveal the depth, ultimately. The surface will reveal the truth, even if it's a surface truth, oh, I'm bored. That's, you know, it's not the deepest truth of who you are, but it's a relative truth in the moment. If you're willing to stay with it, it'll keep showing you more and more truth. Also, as we begin to uh, let go of the judgment, it will help our minds quiet. And, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting um, aspiration to quiet the mind. It's actually a, a lovely aspiration, and it's really lovely when the mind quiets. Of course, often when it really quiets, people get a little nervous, because mm -hmm. it's not how, mostly we know ourselves through our mind talking to us, right? I, Right, like you've been in silence, ha. Huh. Right, anybody been in silence today? Or have you noticed that they, you've been talking to yourself the whole time? And it's not a bad thing, it's what minds do, right? If you have an eyes and they're open, they'll see, or if you have a nose and there's this, you know, if you have a body, you'll feel. If you have a mind, it'll think. That's what minds do. It takes a little training to learn how to calm the mind. 
to quiet the mind. And this is where the samadhi side of practice, samadhi meaning unifying the mind, meaning calming and concentrating and centering the mind, is very helpful. And so that's why we work with being with the body and the breathing, to just get here, get here, get here. And, and it's a little more solid than our thoughts, right? It's not really solid, but it's a little more solid, right, the body. And so it's tangible, and it'll help bring us out of this uh, virtual world of our thinking that we take to be reality. And it has its place, thought. I love thought. I like to think. Thinking is beautiful. Somebody thought of Spirit Rock. And here we are. The Buddha, after he's enlightened, there's this lovely point where he says, and then he had this thought. And he thought, should he teach or not? And, and it came from him thinking. Thoughts are not bad. It's said in, in spiritual life, thoughts are a wonderful servant and a terrible master. And the problem is mostly we're, we're, we're enthralled by our thinking. We, we believe that's reality, and it's a lot how the whole, whole world. Ajahn Buddhadasa, when he was asked, what did he think of the modern world? He, he gave a three-word answer. Lost in thought. And it's such a pleasure to come out of that world and know how to use it skillfully, know how to use thought skillfully, but to also know how to let go of it. I mean, and you've all had the experience. Often people have it in nature, where they're just not thinking. They're, we're just there. Sometimes people have it like in the shower, in the bath, you know, the sensations or in a sauna. You know, in, in certain sensual experiences, we come out of thought and we love it. That's why people like sexuality, because, you know, if you're really there, you're not thinking about it so much. You're like there. And, and, it's, and people think it's the sex, and that's part of it, but it's the thereness that we love. So quieting the mind is a skill, and it takes a number of different qualities that any skill will take, whether it's playing the piano, or learning to be a scholar, or whatever the skill might be, or, or knife sharpening. Patience is very important for a skill for the skill of quieting the mind. Persistence or repetition is a very important part of the skill. And that's really what we do on a long retreat. We're, we're building these skills. Whether you know it or not, you're learning how to be patient. Because if you're not, what happens? You suffer. If you, and the repetition, doing it again and again, means that we have to learn how to be creative. How do we stay present over and over again? We don't know. And that's where our creativity comes forward. Any skill, even knife sharpening, asks us to be creative. How do you do it each time so you get the blade just right? Or, what, or it's cooking, you know? Cooking, you don't just learn how to cook the first time you cook. It builds, your, your skill builds over time with using the different spices and the heat and whatever uh, instruments you have for cooking. And the Buddha used all these ways, uh, all these analogies to talk about meditation. Being a musician, how do you do right effort? He used the, he used the example of a lute player tuning the lute. You don't want to make the strings too tight, they'll actually break. You don't want to make them too loose. They won't resonate properly. And it's the same with, oh, that's how you, you practice. You don't want to get too tight. You don't want your effort to be tight and strained and stressful. But you don't want to be too lax either and not really kind of be here. Make your intention and do your best. Be wholehearted. And, so, and that balance fluctuates throughout the day. Sometimes you need to back off a little more. Sometimes you need to say, no, I'm really going to try and stay present now. And only you will know. Only you will know. We, we can give you guidelines, but we're giving them to you. And then you work with the, the various instructions and ways and means and skills. And you become the flautist or the cook or the uh, uh, whatever it might be or the scholar. You become the meditation master by doing it.
And um, let's see. Um, um, now, thought is very powerful. I feel very respectful of thought and how powerful it is and how, uh, how used to living in that realm we are. And, and there are also what's called, somebody asked about obsessive thought. Anybody notice repetitions, totally the thoughts coming over and over again? Okay, few people. One of the skillful means that I know about working with thought when it's like that is to um, start to pay attention to what's the juice in the thought. There's something juicy there. Like the repetition comes, oh, he said, and she said, and I should have said, and I'm going to say, and I, and I should have said it then, but I didn't. And then you get, okay, I'll be with my breath, be with my breath. Oh, I know how I'm going to say it. I know. Oh, I feel more scented. I'm really going to tell them what to do. So there's the thought, but we're actually getting caught in the thought. In other words, we're... we're um, we're, we're enthralled in the thought in a way that's not so skillful. We're not actually paying, to, paying attention to what's fueling the thought, which is, oh, I'm angry. That anger is being expressed in the thought. Or I'm hurt, and that's what's being expressed in the repetition. So see if you can see what the juice is, and then also say, oh, what's happening in my body as I'm feeling angry or feeling you know, or this repetitions here, what's happening in my body? To start to come down a little bit out of that virtual world into both the somatic and the emotional fuel that's part of the thinking process. And that, will, that begins to help undercut obsessive thought. And some of it, you just have to endure. I mean, I had a retreat, I was sitting for a month last year, and I'd had a, not a good situation with a friend of mine, a lot of anger, and I was hurt. And it really lasted a while. And I'm good at, I, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing, and I'm good at doing it. I'm very devoted. But it just stayed and stayed. One day I was sitting, and it wrenched me out of my chair, really. I got, it was like the anger again came, and it was like, you know, and I'm obsessing about what happened. And, you know, and I just went and did some really fast walking meditation back and forth and back and forth. And, and just some loving kindness for myself, for my suffering. Oh, this is suffering. Obsessive thinking is suffering. And that helped relax. Not, it didn't make it go away. It helped relax my relationship to it so I could continue to work with it the kindness that Deborah was pointing out in the guided meditation. And, you know, the other piece that's helpful, both for obsessive thought, both for quiet, for um, um, judgment, that's helpful for um, um, staying with our suffering, is actually just our benevolence towards ourselves, our goodwill towards ourselves. And being able to forgive ourselves for not being perfect, not being free. We're not free. We're not Buddhas yet. We're doing okay just being here. I think it's a great that we're here. But we're not. If, we, if we're totally free, you wouldn't need to come on this retreat. And so being not free means, oh, we suffer. There's still, there's still some confusion. There's still some ignorance. Or, or not seeing clearly the way things are. Can we forgive ourselves for our humanness, for our lack of perfection, for our mistakes? And that's a very, very, very important part of developing any skill, is to be able to make a mistake and be okay with making mistakes. So part of the skill of learning to be human, let's see if I can find this. There's a quote from the Dalai Lama I saw I had around here somewhere. Mm. He said, our greatest task is to become more fully human. Our greatest task is to become more fully human. And part of becoming human is learning to forgive, first of all, ourselves. We've all done things that are unskillful. We've all done things that we have remorse for. 
and we wish we hadn't done. But like in Gulimala, we don't have to blame ourselves. We have an opportunity now to respond. And that's what the Dharma gives us. The present moment, whatever, whatever you've done, it's gone. It's done. The sooner, and it's not always easy, but the sooner you can forgive yourself, the sooner you can allow the blessings of the present moment to shine forth. And that's what we have to offer now. Forgiving. Who asked about forgiveness? Where was the person? Were you talking about forgiving self or other? Both. My yeah. understanding is we need to start forgiving ourselves. That's a good understanding. That's my understanding also. So for now, I'll just stay with self, although one thing I want, I will say one thing about forgiving others, which is the Dharma is also about being authentic. And there are situations that are um, horrible. There are things that have happened that are almost unforgivable. So you can't forgive just because you want to forgive. We have to be real. And there are certain things like, no, I am not ready to forgive. And you can make the intention or inclination, may I find whatever heart that is that could forgive, may that come in the future. But I have to be honest right now, no, that's not what's true. And I forgive myself. I don't have any judgment about myself that I can't forgive yet. That just happens to be what's true now. Because we set up certain ideals here, but we're not, we're not trying to pretend. What's true is what will free us, not the ideal. The ideal will come if we're willing to investigate the truth. Compassion will come if we're willing to see suffering, not because we want to be compassionate. So here, here, you can forgive yourself for whatever's happened so far that you feel harsh towards yourself. Whatever it is, oh, I was stupid, or I didn't do it right, I had a bad meditation, I should have prepared more, I should have read more books, whatever it is, (laughs) let it go. It's gone. Your whole life until this moment is actually gone. And it doesn't mean we don't learn from the past, but the richness of what's possible is here in the present moment. And it's why we focus on it. Um, um, It's why we want to work with letting go of fantasizing about the future, about chocolate, sex and they're normal fantasies they seem and they can even seem more rich when you're sitting like, oh dark chocolate i love that oh i can almost taste it oh let me just focus on that <laughs> wanting wanting it's just wanting it's normal human it's, it's actually called one of the hindrances and, and I'll just say the five hindrances because you may have noticed one or two or all of them <laughs> during the day. So there's the first two, the first four are paired. There's desire and aversion, which I mentioned briefly about wanting something that's not here, like sex or chocolate, or, what, or you know, watching the Tour de France on TV because it started today, or whatever you're <laughs> wanting might be. Or aversion. You know, oh, I don't want this feeling in my knee, my back, my chest, my ankle, whatever, wherever it might be. I don't want this grief. I've had enough of this grief. I don't want this uh, being spaced out, tired, restless, etc. Desire and aversion. They're just part of human life. Restlessness and sleepiness or dullness. These are energies that come and we 
think that they're a problem. Oh, not only that, restlessness. I'm going to run out of the room if I feel this for another second. It's like having ants in your pants. And it can be very strong at times. And of course, you all know sleepiness, so I don't have to say much about that. And then the fifth hindrance is doubt. Doubt. It's the slipperiest. So I'll just say, the first two, we just want to see, oh, this is wanting, desire. It's not bad. There's no moral judgment in Buddhism about desire or aversion. I have a lot of aversion. I'm an aversive personality. There's, there might be one or two others up here that are aversive, too. There are a few out there. And, and, but you don't have to believe it. It's just, oh, I have, it's like the first, it's like almost the way our minds have been conditioned. I'll tell you a quick story. When my daughter was about 13, she started to ask, oh, can I do this or can I do that? And I would say, no. She'd say, oh, Dad, can I do this? And I'm like, no. And, and then we had a talk about what was happening because she wasn't happy. And finally, and I know I'm an aversive personality, so we talked about it and we worked out a really good way for her to ask. And she started to ask, she would say, Dad, after you say no, will you think about whether I can do this? <laughs> And so I could say no, and then I would think about it, and then, and this is true, 90 to 95% of the time, then I would say yes. Because I was just having my aversive and fatherly reaction, you know. But when I looked clearly, it was all fine. So desire and aversion, they're, they're states of mind, and we believe them. We don't see they're just states of mind. And when we start to become mindful, we see that there's something more here than even the state of mind. The mindfulness is, like I said, it's not, the knowing is not what we know. The mindfulness is not the state of mind. The space is free of what it knows. And we begin to have a, some kind of choice about how do we want to respond. Restlessness and sleepiness, they're more physical. They're more energetic and somatic, and they seem really real, and they are real. You're tired when you're feeling tired, or you're restless when you're feeling restless. The question is how to be mindful of it. Can you sit with restlessness? One of the helpful things about naming it restlessness is it gives us a context. It's just restlessness. It's a state of energy. The energy's imbalanced. There's too much, really. Or with the sleepiness or dullness, there's too little energy. Can we be with it? That's all. That's the only question. What's skillful? Stand up. A lot of people raised their hands this morning when Deborah asked about who was sleepy, right? I think it was Deborah or Anushka, I can't remember. And, um, and when I saw that, I was like, uh, here's my mind, was like, well, more of you should be standing during the meditation if you're that sleepy. And try it. Believe me, nobody will be looking except for us. And we look and see when you're nodding off. So, um, And then doubt. Doubt is tricky because it's very rational. Oh, yeah, I'm really, this is really not the right teaching for me. I, I don't think this really works. Yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of stay here until they let me leave. But really, I don't, it's not, you know, maybe it's right for some other people. Or maybe I'll come back another time, you know. I, but I don't think, I don't think it's, I don't think I can really get this body and breathing stuff. You know, it's, it's doubt. It's called skeptical doubt in the tradition. And um, maybe you can't do it. Maybe it's the wrong practice. But what happens is the doubt clouds, veils your relationship to the practice so you don't actually know. You're believing the idea, the view, the opinion that you can't do it instead of giving yourself wholeheartedly and seeing for yourself. Like, okay, I'm going to do this. Even if it's the wrong practice, I'm going to do it and see what happens. And I'll decide after, you know, three days is over or after I do it for six months or a year or five years, I'll really decide then, is this the right practice or not? 
but I'm not just going to listen to this every moment. Like it's, every, notice how you judge every sitting? And then you think, oh, and I, you know, you have a bad sitting, oh, I can't do it. I have a good sitting, oh, great, I can do it. <laughs> Don't judge it. You know, that's how they go. Some are good and some are bad. There's something bigger than that happening in the training. There's something bigger than, than the, the various winds, the worldly winds that just come and go. Um, Let's see. So I think I'll end uh, a little bit. I'm not going to get to every theme here. Um, by saying a little bit more about loving kindness, incorporating loving kindness. And it's really, we're going to do, well, tomorrow there'll be a guided loving kindness meditation. But it's really the spirit of goodwill that we want to weave into how we're being mindful of our experience. We want to let the heart... Mindfulness, it's a bad word. I'm, I'm, it's, it, I'm sorry, it's not a bad word. It's an inaccurate description of what we're doing. Because really, if we were to describe sati, this, what's translated as mindfulness, and sometimes translated as remembering, what, what sati is, is really bringing the totality of our being, body, heart, and mind, present in the moment with all its capacities to see clearly what's happening. And so the heart is as important as the mind. We could really, we could call it heartfulness. We could just change the language or bodyfulness. But really all three are really important for, for, for the uh, totality of our being to learn how to show up. So all the capacities that are here, all the sensitivity that's here, the intuition that's here, the love, the, in, the uh, kindness and the intelligence and the ingenuity and creativity and the wisdom, we want all of that. And that's what we're really cultivating. That's what we're training. So the attitude of how we pay attention to the pain of our knee, we want to bring a quality of loving kindness. How we pay attention to the obsessive thinking, how we pay attention to the uh, um, desire for chocolate or the aversion to the boredom. All of that is held in a field of generosity, of kindness, of care. And if we devote ourselves Somebody asked about how the practice benefited me, you, and what got in the way in the beginning. All the things that are happening to you got, got in the way in the beginning. It's, it's pretty normal for everybody. You know, it's all kinds of frustration and difficulty and confusion and does it work, doubt, and then things happen. And it's like, oh, how do I... Then part of the task and part of the skill is how do I center my life in the Dharma? And we'll speak to that more tomorrow. And that's a whole skill in of itself. But I'd like to end by reading the rest of what Alison Wright wrote about her experience. Because it's relevant to how, is the how does the practice benefit us ultimately? What happens? And she talks about basically being left on a dirt floor um, in a little hut, no medical care for a while. Um, she said, six hours passed, no more help arrived. Opening my eyes, I was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. That's when I became convinced I was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me, a bone-deep peace I could have never imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with each other. I realized then that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. A warm light of unconditional love encompassed me, and I no longer felt alone. The Dharma reveals itself. 
the Dharma will reveal itself. The Dharma that's sitting in your seat will reveal itself if we're willing to be present and see where it takes us. Let's sit for a minute, please. beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering of ignorance, of confusion, of division, of all the ways that we judge ourselves and others. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together, realizing our true nature, our Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. meditation now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.